Welcome to the Brave Little Podcast, my favorite pod of the year, top 10 films of 2021. And joining me, as always, for this pod from Los Angeles is Aaron Alvarado. I, uh, I'm just going to correct you right off the bat. Uh, I'm not from Los Angeles. I'm from Burbank. Burbank. California. Burbank, California. <laughs> you went Disney on us. Love it. <laughs> Love I'm it. from the studios. And uh, from, is it Orem still, right? Orem? It's Saratoga Springs. Saratoga Springs. Springs. <laughs> Holy <specific>. mackerel. <laughs> Holy cow. Overlooking um, Utah Lake, it's Shannon Williams. Shannon, thanks for joining going? us. So good. Thanks for having me. So good. I am so excited. I don't, don't want to waste any time. I want to get into our lists. Uh, but yeah. I will ask one question first. What movie... <laughs> Did you wish you could have seen before you made your end of year list that you did not get around to seeing? Because I, I'm looking at a lot of critic year end lists and there's these movies that are like really heralded and they're nowhere to be found. Not on streaming, not in theaters, and they're like coming out in February or whatever. Theoretical like, movie. Yeah. yeah. It's like, okay, I yeah. guess that can make my list next year. Uh, was there, was Drive. there, yeah. What is it for you? Drive my car. Yeah. And um, I guess technically Tragedy of Macbeth is oh, out yeah. in theaters, but mm-hmm. it's not on Apple TV yet, and I'm not going to watch it until it's on there. So, but yeah, I'm a big Shakespeare fan. Is that in a bunch of the? Is that like all over? The, I haven't even looked. It's all I know is January it's, 14th, it's on, it's going to be on my Apple television set. Right. <laughs> so I think it's pretty limited release, but it's a Coen Brothers movie. Like it should have been released more widely. So, so I'm with you. Drive My Car, Japanese film. Uh, I mean, I honestly don't know a ton about it other than the trailer and the fact that it's been, you know, critically uh, lauded. Um, I mean, I will say when I saw it, it was on Obama's end of your list, I was incredibly jealous and I'll, honestly a little bit upset because if you're the president of the United States, I think you absolutely get to see the movies early. But when you're no longer the president, how is he still getting screeners? He's not a member of the Academy that we or is he? Maybe he is. He but, hasn't he technically won an Oscar? Yeah, produced, yeah right. or nominated at least. Or did he win? It was it for the documentary I think he won. American Factory. It was for American Factory. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe. So yeah, he's probably in the ca- in the oh, academy. Gosh, he's in all the guilds. Um, <laughs> how about you, Aaron? Was there a movie that you really wanted to check uh, I, out? I would say 2021 was the year of me missing every movie that I wanted to see. So <laughs> it's been kind of busy the last few months. So I missed quite a few movies. Uh, but number one on that list is Licorice Pizza. I still haven't seen it. So. Oh, you haven't seen it? Mm-mm. No, I have not seen it. You're the biggest so Paul that, Tom, yeah, PTA fan I know, and you yes, did not get to. I a chance haven't. Yet. Man. Okay. I just, right. I, I just haven't had a chance. Um, but yeah, so that's not going to be on my list. Spoiler, mm. minor spoiler. All right, all right. Well, let's get to it. We'll start with Shannon, and then go to you, Aaron. Uh, let's start with our our number tens of the year. Okay, just going right into it. going right into it, yeah. We got 30 movies to talk about, presumably. Um, Aaron only saw three, so. um. Yeah. So 23 movies to go over. Great. Um, So my number 10, truthfully, I just saw this this weekend um, because it just came out on Netflix, and so we'll see. I'm already regretting its placement, thinking it might need to be higher. So we'll see, like, over time, kind of how it fares. Um, but my number 10 is The Lost Daughter oh. from new director Maggie Gyllenhaal. Um, I thought this is awesome. Have either of you seen this movie yet? No, I have not. It's I gotten not. great reviews, and it just dropped on Netflix, I think. 
Um, it did. Okay. Um, so I won't say too much about it other than um, Olivia Coleman's in it. Truthfully, I think this is the best performance I've seen from her. So I know she has an Oscar, kind of want her to win another Oscar for this one. Um, she's vacationing on a beach in Greece. Um, and she has, there's another family um, that's staying on the beach and um, including Dakota Johnson and her young daughter. And seeing this family kind of makes Olivia Coleman kind of think back to her past and sort of confront some things she's done in her past with her own children. Um, Jesse Buckley plays a younger ver version of Olivia Coleman, and it's just shot in a really beautiful way. Um, it's kind of upsetting is not the right word, but the whole time I was like, what's going to happen, even though it's really just a familial kind of drama? Um, there's a point where Olivia Coleman says children are a crushing responsibility and that's really what the film is about is just the sacrifices mothers make um, how tough it is to be a woman in some ways um, and truthfully I was watching this and being like what will Maggie Gyllenhaal's children think of this one day when they're old enough to watch this movie because <laughs> I would be a little alarmed if it were my mother creating this and what she thought about being my mother but um I don't know, is a woman that's, you know, not, who does not have children, but is hitting kind of childbearing years and is, you know, thinking about that at some point. Um, yeah, it gave me a lot to think about. Wow. Lost daughter. All right. I think I saw the trailer for that. I, I remember thinking, I thought it was Olivia Coleman just on the beach being a, a real Karen. And uh, maybe it was a misreading of the trailer. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I would I wouldn't say she's a Karen. I, know, I, I, I like I, her. I know nothing. <laughs> but it's good. All right. That's, that's your number great. ten. You just wow. That's I was yep. that was another question I was thinking about asking is how many movies did you cram in knowing we we're gonna do this pod to try and see Several. what we make Yeah. I did that Zero. Um, you, zero for, for Aaron. Zero. Yeah, I knew that. I could trust Aaron. I was like, Aaron's not gonna. He's not gonna change one bit of his movie. Go that's, movie watching. Actually, habits. that's not true. I did watch one yet. I watched one yesterday, and it is on my list. So is it so okay. one? Oh yay! So I crammed in two movies yesterday. One made my list, and one didn't. Uh, I'll say the one that didn't I, I, is a movie I actually liked, um, but not just couldn't crack my. T and that's Come On, Come On with Joaquin Phoenix. Liked it quite a bit. I just couldn't, couldn't, couldn't get it to crack my top ten. Even though it I. Is. It's a movie about uncles and nephews, and I take my responsibility and role as an uncle very seriously. Uh, and so I, I, I enjoyed the journey, but it wasn't quite enough there for me to crack my, crack my top 10. That is like my number 12, and I'm okay. kind of mad that I couldn't fit yeah. it on there. Something had to go, and I'm I'm mad that it had to go because I really liked it's that really one, too. It's a really good movie. I enjoyed it, yeah. Yeah. All right, Aaron, let's hear your number 10. So number 10 I had uh, Last Night in Soho. Ooh. which I liked quite a bit. I thought it was a it was a nice take on the um, the horror genre. It was actually a, kind of an homage to like the late our uh, late sixties seventies Italian horror films, um, and that's basically what this is. Like this is a Ed, Edgar Wright's version of that, and and that's basically that's the model he uses to tell the story. And I th I thought he did a really good job. Some great performances in it, and. Um, it's a little weird and, and it feels disjointed and that's because it is like a direct homage to those old style horror films so um, but overall I thought it was very very good and I thought uh, I haven't been a huge fan of Edgar Wright's uh, latest I can't remember what was the last thing he did before the documentary if we were I don't know if I knew oh, before Sparks Brothers yeah um, 
Was it Baby Driver? It been, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was Baby Driver. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so, I, you know, Baby Driver yeah. was okay. It was fine. But <laughs> yeah. I, I needed, like, something... I was hoping for something uh, a lot better than that. And uh, last time, so it was, I thought it was really good. So Great. that was my number 10. Great. Uh, can, I, can I cheat and put number t- two movies on my number 10? Let's hear it. Yeah. Okay. I will say this. If there, I don't necessarily believe there's always like a clear theme in a list. And I certainly wouldn't make a list just to cater to an idea or a theme. But there, there definitely is a theme in many of the movies. Um, and for me, there's a theme of both uh, memories or the importance of rem- – it's a kind of twofold. One, just the idea of mem- memory and remembering and the importance of remembering. Um, and also just how weird, how funny memory can be. Anyway, so – this applies to my my my, uh, my two part number ten, which is um, one is a documentary and that is uh, the Summer of Soul, um, or when the was or when the revolution could not be televised. Uh, this is a Sundance film that I saw nearly a year ago, and has been since released on Hulu uh, by Questlove. This is wonderful. Uh, it's, it is such a joy to watch this massive Harlem music festival that no one had ever seen the footage of apparently until Questlove somehow got his hands on the footage, was able to put out this documentary and it's really, really remarkable to see. And I love some of the interviews with the people that were there. Um, They're getting reactions, uh, you know, years later interviewing for this documentary. Um, And there was a, a remark one of these people makes in the film saying they're so happy like their memory, they remember this being a significant event going to this music festival and seeing the footage. They're so happy that it was as significant as they remembered it to be. Because oftentimes memory can be a funny thing. You can remember certain events as being way more significant than they were or vice versa in some cases. But I know I have had many t- times in my life where I hold on to this memory of this thing that was so important to me. And then I start to second guess of whether or not it really was that significant. So when you get that validation, which in the documentary for a moment, at least someone gets that validation that really resonated with me aside from the fact it's just wonderful music. So summer of soul on Hulu. I recommend people checking that out. Uh, the tie for Denver 10 for me, uh, a film that's less fun to watch, but certainly at least equally important. Uh, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. So bear with me, but it's uh quo Vadis Ida, which is uh, translates to uh, where are you going? Ida. Uh, this is a Bosnian film also on Hulu. You can find it. Um, this is technically released uh, in 2020 because I think it was eligible for the international Oscars. It was not released in the United States until March of 2021, which is why it's on that list for me. Uh, look, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. This is tough to watch because of the conflict it's covering. So this takes place in 1995. Um, it follows, um, again, it's a Bosnian film. It follows uh, a, a woman named Jasna. Well, sorry, the actress, the performance is Jasna Durkic, Durkic. I want to say Doncic, but it's definitely not it because that's Luca, a basketball player. Um, anyway, this is the actress that plays the main character, Ida. She's a translator for the United Nations. Um, as the Serbian forces are kind of descending upon the city of Srebrenica, and they're in this quote-unquote safe zone. The United Nations had designated this safe zone. Now, she is a UN translator that's trying to help the, the UN. Uh, it's essentially the Dutch that are running um, kind of this operation for the United Nations. She's a translator for them to the Serbian forces. Meanwhile, she has a husband and two sons that she's trying to keep safe and protected from being picked out. And what we now understand to be this massive genocidal event where um, over 8,000 men and boys were murdered. 
and it is tough to watch but to that theme of memory I mean, I, I was alive when this happened. I remember in the news it being talked about, but I really don't. I had no clue what was going on. I was also just a kid. Uh, but watching this and remembering that, it's it almost stuns me that we don't talk about more what happened there. The failings of the United Nations, what was going on, the circumstances around it. The movie doesn't really hold your hands when it comes to like the geopolitical stakes. They kind of throw you in it and, and they want you to kind of come in knowing generally what's happening, which I actually like that they do that. Uh, but this is an incredibly harrowing film. It is so well made. The performances are so incredible. And while yes, it is tough to watch, it's it is an important watch. Like it, for me, I it it, it was riveting, gut wrenching, but like truly excellent cinema. Like really, really great movie. Uh, and I mean, it's one hundred percent Rotten Tomatoes. So there you go. Um, and they're never wrong. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Bosnian once. film. I, first I time. Have a question. Bosn- What's that? I have a question. Yeah. Both of those are on Hulu? Yep. Can I borrow your Hulu account? Yeah, I think the Hulu headquarters are literally across the street from you in Burbank. So why don't you just walk in there, ask the, ask the, the receptionist for a password. They'll give it to you. They give them to you. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. a good point. I think I will try that later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I tried to I tried to look up where you can find each one of the films on my list, and I failed to do that. But my first two, I know they're on Hulu. The rest, you, people can fend for themselves. But anyway. By the way, this episode is brought to you by Hulu.com. It is, yeah, by the Mouse House themselves. Yeah, this is a Disney-sponsored podcast for sure. Uh, all right, heck of a num- number 10. A lot of strong 10s there. So let's go number nine. Shannon. Yeah. Um, so my number nine is Titan, <laughs> um, which is a movie that I don't think I can broadly recommend to people because <laughs> oh, I'm worried good. about what people will think of me when they know how much I enjoyed this movie. <laughs> Actually, maybe enjoy is not the right word. Um, but anyway, Stoffer, you may remember that mm-hmm. the first time I was on this podcast, the very first movie that I brought up was Raw, um, which was Julia Ducournau's first film, which is about a girl who basically becomes a cannibal. And I came in hot with this like French cannibal film. And here I am again being like, I, I am just, any movie that Julia DeCorno wants to release at this point, I am game. Um, her films are wild. I never know what's going to happen. Um, and I just like buckle up and sit back for the ride <laughs> with all of them. Um, I I don't know that I can even really get too much into what this film is about without giving things away. Um, I'll say that, so the actual logline for the film is following a series of unexplained crimes, a father is reunited with a son who has been missing for 10 years. Um, so I'll say there's, <laughs> there's a whole lot more to it than that, including um, a serial killer that's trying to escape arrest and all sorts of interesting things. Um, it is not for the faint of heart. Um, there are also in, unspeakable acts that are done with a car. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it's a car, it's yes. a movie for car enthusiasts for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, the father Vincent Linden in this film I think is just incredible. Um, he's an actor that the amount of emotion that you can just see in his eyes, <laughs> even um, he just says a lot without doing a whole lot. Um, so yeah, it it was just a great movie. I loved that I never really knew what was coming. There are parts of it I wish I would never want to watch again. I wish I could forget. <laughs> but um, I it's always think a good sign of a movie. 
always a good sign. Yeah, yeah. I never want to watch that again. I know. <laughs> is it? In, is the movie in French? It is. Okay. I just think it, it, Julia DeCorno deserves so much credit for doing something so original and by taking huge swings with everything she makes. So um, I hope people continue to give her money for making these like super wild things. <laughs> yep. it is a, that movie is a huge swing. You are not wrong. <laughs> You're not wrong. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. I was wondering if I was going to make your list. That's great. I'm, I'm happy it did. That's great. Yep. Fantastic. Aaron, number nine. Number nine is a movie we did a podcast episode on. Uh, the Last Duel. Ooh, yeah. Ridley. Uh, Yay. Ridley Scott, the man, the myth, the legends. Uh, a reteaming of uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. Um, I mean, just overall, I thought it was it was a pretty good movie. I, th- I think it was the ninth best movie that I saw this year, which yeah. says a lot about me. Um, uh, <laughs> it's just, it, you know, it's fine. It's, it's a movie that I probably won't revisit too often, but I enjoyed it. I was entertained and... Uh, you know, it was a good time at the movie theater. So The Last Duel is number nine on my list. So I do. I have that one as number nine on my list of mo- movies with best hair for 2021. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> that one actually might be higher than nine. Yeah, You're maybe. Underselling maybe. It. Uh, there's a few others that give it a run for its money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, The Last Duel. A movie that uh, millennials uh, refuse to go see. That's right. Um, <laughs> that failed at the box office, according to Ridley Scott, because of apathy, millennial mm-hmm. apathy. Mm-hmm. Which you know what is he wrong? <laughs> He's not wrong. He's actually not wrong. And there was I know, a, I uh, know, I know. So, so Ben Affleck did a uh, a nice long form interview with Bill Simmons um, on his podcast, and he yeah. he talked about that specifically. He said, you know, he's not wrong. He's right. There's there's a changing of the guard, and um, you know that's it's just the reality of things, and. That movie is not made for today's audiences, so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, they thought, like, the magic, yeah, kids are going to, you know, everyone loved Goodwill Hunting, you know. It's like Matt Damon, Ben Affleck. <laughs> Turns out millennials pretty young let's, when that movie came out. I don't think that was going to get them into let's, the theater. Let's try to recapture that spark. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it worked for me. It was number nine on my list, so. No, it's a, it's a really good movie. I spent, I spent so much of that movie being, like, I enjoyed it, but why is Ridley Scott doing this? And then I got to the actual duel, and I was like, oh, okay, here's why yeah, Ridley yeah. Scott is doing this yeah. in the last, like, 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. You're like, okay. Well, and to be fair, I think that was the only part of the movie that Rid- where Ridley Scott was doing this. Um, <laughs> I think. Um... So what part of uh, last The House of Gucci did uh, Ridley Scott direct? Because Every scene with Jared Leto. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, a good point. Uh... I mean, look, I look. If I don't get like a full eight hours of sleep, I'm a zombie the next day, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm 35. The, mm-hmm. the Ridley Scott's in his 80s. You're telling mm-hmm. me that he is all the way over there in Europe, like, traver- like there's no chance. Like, I mean, there is a chance. He probably has more energy and probably is much healthier than me. But still, mm-hmm. I can't imagine him making those two movies in short. Like, it's an exhausting thing to be a director. Um, but apparently him and Clint Eastwood are making movies way They just churn past. them out. I mean, it's yeah. really, it's remarkable. It really is an achievement. So <laughs> I, uh, if Last Duel's number nine, I can't wait to see where House of Gucci is on your list. Um, <laughs> I'll never tell. <laughs> yeah, so. well, we're going to find out soon. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, my number nine is another documentary. Uh, you can find it on Disney+. Plus. It is from the directors Jimmy Chin and uh, Chai Vassarelli. It is The Rescue. 
This is the documentary about the uh, the Thai soccer team, uh, some young boys and their coach who got trapped in caves after a monsoon hit. Uh, anyone that was following the news at the time, this dominated the news. Now, there's probably questions to ask about whether or not this was the most important thing going on in the world and whether it deserved that much news attention, whatever. But, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, I was when this was happening, the actual events, I was absolutely enthralled. I watched every every minute of news coverage I could get. And I wondered why I why I was so fascinated and so intrigued by it. And honestly, as sappy as this is, there was something to the idea that multiple countries coming together to save these kids. These are just children. And there's this earthly event that happens with like and, and it, this seemingly impossible, especially the moment where they had been in the cave for X number of days. And it was like, well, certainly they're no longer alive. But then they found them alive. And then the feat of engineering and creativity required to figure out how to get them out alive. And the fact that they did, spoiler alert, is so remarkable. Now, we're going to be seeing a lot of content about this event coming in the next year or two. There's going to be a, net, there's a Netflix show. I think Hulu or Amazon Prime is doing their own show. And there's the rights to like the kids and their parents. And the, are, they're weirdly distributed amongst all these different production companies. So this documentary, weirdly enough, they couldn't interview the children. And I went in being concerned, like, oh, are we going to get the full story here? Well, the truth of it is, is we don't get the full story from the sense of all the angles. But we, uh, this film that they did have the rights to, and this is a National Geographic Disney production, was to the cave divers, the expert cave divers from all over the world, primarily the two from England that were kind of the first to the scene. Um, we get their story. And that's what was most fascinating to me was to see you know, them make a fairly selfless decision, them and all their friends that they invite to come in and do this thing that was a seemingly impossible impossible task that they pulled off, which I still can't believe. And the documentary makes it even clearer how insane the idea was and even more insane that they pulled it off. It's so good. Um, and there's a line in it that sticks sticks with me. One of the, the main cave divers talks, they, they kind of go in on each one of them. They talk about how weird a lot of them are or like kind of socially awkward or they were bullied or they just weren't you know and it's it really is a freaking weird group of guys but they're experts at this one thing that they love and they're called on in this moment to save lives and they pull through and the, the comment the guy makes is you know i was picked last for cricket but i'm picked first for the cave diving team i'll take <laughs> and i love that i, I love that story these are these are like mm -hmm. the heroes we're talking about aren't these super like, heroic looking characters this is like an it professional that cave dives for fun as a hobby it's like so question, i love seeing, I have a question yeah what was he doing in thailand well he flew in because they called him oh okay you're thinking of Vern unsworth so Ver, <laughs> Vern unsworth who already lived in thailand and who Elon Musk made some definitive comments about no Elon ask Elon ask Elon he has some thoughts about <laughs> Uncle Vern, um, but they do, Vern is the first interview in the in the documentary and they oh, good. he told I'm them like you need expert yeah. cave divers and they're like well you know because their SEAL team you know really didn't have that expertise, um, and uh, so he writes down two names Vern does and that's that those are the two main divers that we follow throughout the rest of the documentary and they and they come over and in the doc it's incredible there's moments where in the documentary where they literally give up they say we you're never going to find these kids and they're not going to be alive like they tried to go home and i was amazed that they even admitted that they admitted wow. that they quit and they thought it was impossible and then they found the kids two days later and they talk about how terrible they felt about giving up and I can understand why they would have given the conditions in the cave and with all the rain and water. And it was, it's really remarkable. So um, that's a 96% Rotten Tomatoes. 
So don't take my word for it. Excellent documentary. The Rescue is my number nine film of the year. Cool. So. It's so good. It's so good. I took, I was on vacation back east and needed a little bit of a break away from people. <laughs> so I went and watched it in the middle of the day and just as grossly sobbing in a theater in Connecticut. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, oh, it's emotional. Great. Am yeah. I real? I love that there's the, um, at the end too so the one i can't remember either of their names now but the one cave diver um there's kind of a romance between him like he's fallen in love with this woman from thailand before this whole deal with the kids in the cave and that's like a through line and now i just gotta know if he's still or not i know Uh, was one of the kids in the cave did that was that her son or something no no No. she lived in the area she was weirdly Mm. Yeah, or something like she that. was visiting yeah. London or something and met him, and they started a romance. But then he ends up in Thailand anyway. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, yep. yeah. I would love to know because she was dropping hints throughout the documentary. That's like, come on, exactly. You know, like, let's do this. You know, it's like Richard, <laughs> answer my calls. Yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I think that's Richard Stanton. Uh, that's I think that was his name, or it's one of their names. They're, yeah, yeah. I, I keep forgetting which one's which. <laughs> Uh, all right, we're to number eight. Yes. All right. So um, my number eight is The Power of the Dog. Ooh. Um, yeah, a very interesting film. Um, I, so my summary of this that I wrote down is hyper-masculine jerk Bill Burbank basically goes on a rampage when his brother brings his new wife and stepson back to his ranch. Um, so Benedict Cumberbatch, I, the most interesting thing about this film is the fact that Benedict Cumberbatch was cast, but as you get deeper into the movie, it all of a sudden makes sense why. <laughs> because when you think of like super macho cowboys, he is not the first actor that comes to mind. Um, but I don't want to spoil it too much, but yeah, the deeper you get into the film, it's like, <laughs> now it all makes sense um, because this is a guy that's kind of putting on that masculinity. Um, more than he's letting on um i think benedict cumberbatch gives the best performance of the year that i have seen thus far will smith will absolutely beat him and i'll be mad about it the whole year long (laughs) it's fine um i yeah it's just one of those films that i love that it wasn't what i was expecting it to be um it's kind of a western but again it's just a lot more nuanced than that um and doesn't quite spell out for you what it's supposed to be about. There's a lot of ways to read into it, especially what the titular Power of the Dog actually is. Um, It's set, well, it's supposed to be in, I think, Montana, but it was all filmed in Australia, so you get all these, like, really beautiful kind of sweeping landscape shots. New Zealand, I think, but, oh, yeah. New Zealand. Um, But, yeah, anyway, beautiful film, just left me a lot to think about. Um, at the end of it and I feel like every year we get a lot of like what does it mean to be a man sort of films or or like kind of questioning toxic masculinity Um, and especially because this is filmed by a woman I I just like the kind of different perspective on it so yeah and it makes me want to read the book I I, this one's this movie's not on my list but I I, I quite enjoyed it Uh, it's expertly crafted and made it's the acting across the board is amazing um yeah. i will say one of the great companion pieces to it is 
well, I, I don't know if companion pieces, but uh, Benedict Cumberbatch went on Mark Maron's podcast and they actually got into like an argument. It was like almost combative uh, because, you know, you describe Benedict's character as being this, you know, big bully and much. And that's how Mark described him as well and was kind of like, yeah, I was against him. I was like team the other kid, like as if there were teams. And Benedict took great umbrage to that and was like, oh, I thought it, this it should have been it should be a lot more nuanced than that. Like this was, yes, this was a man who'd made mistakes, but he was on the mend and he was getting better and he was improving and it really should, it shouldn't be black and white about who's good and who's bad. And, and he, he, you could tell how personal it was to him. It's a fascinating interview because uh, Mark's trying to salvage it. When you can listen. tell Benedict is like kind of upset. Um, <laughs> yeah. That, that he would call his character that it's really interesting. So, um, well, and he's a total jerk in the movie, but he's also a victim of what everyone expects him to be, right? Yeah. Like he's been this super, well, a bully, but kind of like, oh, this is what a man is supposed to be. I have to be this like cowboy, like really Bronco. tough guy, yeah. picks on everyone else, you know? And yeah, society wasn't expecting him to be that way. He wouldn't be. Right. But anyway, great film. Now I'm going to yes. have to listen to that Jane interview. <laughs> yep. All right, Aaron, number eight. Number eight is a movie that you all hated, but I enjoyed it. Uh, don't Look Up. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Don't Look <laughs> Up at the rest of your list now. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, actually. At least it's not higher. Heavens. Oh, my I, gosh. You know what? Don't Look Up is very ham-fisted, and it's it's very on the nose, but I liked it. I thought that that's, that is the reality that we live in. We live in the, the very dumbest, stupidest baseline lowest common denominator um <laughs> entertainment world that is that's what we live in that's the reality of things and uh so i thought it, it pretty much nailed um how things would really play out if there was ever a, an extinction level uh, comet headed towards earth so i just thought it was you know it could have been funnier it could have been better written it could have you know there's a hundred things that could have been done better um but overall i just found it was entertaining and i, I like the message of it so really hit home for me Great. I'll stick to only saying positive Aaron. things. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, Aaron, did you like Vice more than either of us did? No, I'm trying to remember. I actually <laughs> didn't like Vice. So I was, not, I was not you a huge fan of You walked out when the credits, when the first credits rolled. You mm -hmm. thought that was it. You had walked out. The, opening, the opening credits is what I thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't a huge fan of Vice, yeah. Like, I really liked the big short, but I just think Adam McKay is getting more and more ham-fisted as he goes along. He is. So we should just stop here. He is, but it's like, okay, but again, like, just, just the exact same way The Last Duel missed its mark on the audience. Uh, Don't Look Up is, like, right on the nose of the audience. Like, that is, it's the perfect movie for the Netflix generation. That's uh, just... Yeah, uh, you might not, I mean, I don't think you're wrong there. It's certainly the most star-studded Netflix film ever released. Yeah. That's for dang sure. Yeah. And uh, you know what? That was maybe uh, Tim Chalamet's best performance. He was really like, good in it. Yeah, There's he is a mo really good yeah. Like, I'm going to keep it to positive <laughs> things, which is primarily Kate Blanchett and Tyler Perry's uh, talk show. Their new. What about J Law's which, haircut? Which was that perfect. Was... You know, J Law's. Oh, uh, no. You know, she's done some really good performances in the past. She has. Um, but Timothy Chalamet, he has a moment at uh, towards the end where he offers to say a prayer because he's a devout mm -hmm. Christian. And, you know, yeah. uh, of course, like a good Christian myself, I, I bow my head and close my eyes as he's saying the prayer. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> no, that didn't happen. But he, um, <laughs> I was waiting for, you know, the bit. I was waiting for the like, oh, okay, yeah, religion, Christians are dumb. Religion is dumb. 
But he proceeds to give this incredibly earnest prayer in this moment of uh, chaotic calamity, put it that way. And I remember being really like, well, I was very surprised by it. It was like, oh, this was played for earnestness, not for laughs, which I wasn't expecting given most everything else in the movie was played for laughs. I thought that was a really interesting inclusion uh, of faith um, in a movie that's otherwise really devoid of that conversation. But I think you're right. Timothy, but he had a heck of a year between that and Dune and the French Dispatch. Didn't see Dune. Was it any good? Uh, do I didn't I didn't catch well it was on HBO Max and I was gonna watch it and then it left the service and I just didn't get a chance to catch yeah. it. I'm gonna have to sign up for the thirty free thirty day trial. To watch uh, um, all right, that was wait where are we at number eight? That was number eight for me. All right, yeah, yeah number so eight. my number eight awesome. uh, is a movie I saw early in the year. It was my favorite movie of the year up to that point. <laughs> it was pretty. Uh, I don't remember exactly what month, but it was in the first half of the year, and that is. I'm trying to remember. Here it is. Um, From director Michael Sarnowski. This is debut feature, Pig, starring (laughs) Nicolas Cage. I don't know. Well, I I can tell you what I was expecting going in. I was about to say I didn't know what I was expecting. Actually, that's a lie. I knew what I was expecting going in. And I was expecting a John Wick-style movie where Nick Cage's pig gets kidnapped and he goes ham on the town of Portland <laughs> with a machine gun and just goes John Wick, right? Like this was going to be a John Wick extension. And you know what? I was ready for I'm, I'm, I'm give, give me Nick Cage doing that. I love Nick Cage. I think he, when, um, when he wants to be, he's one of the greatest actors alive. Uh, he has become a punchline and a meme and a complete caricature. And so it's rare to see him try. Well, this movie is not an action flick. It is not a John Wick flick. And Nick Cage decided to remind everyone why he's an Academy Award winning actor. And it, he is so stunning in this movie. That was unpredictable about every step of the way to me. Uh, I mean, truly shocking. But like, it was a meditative exploration of love and loss as well as a tender expression of food and creative expression and human connection and his uh, interaction and relationship with the character played by Alex Wolf is incredible um, this was a bizarre movie but one that had as bizarre and out there as it was it was created by this uh, with a very steady hand a filmmaker who had a very obvious vision and Nicolas Cage's performance fit right into that vision it's stunning to me that this is someone's debut feature film. I don't know how you make your first full-length movie and it be this good. Um, I think I ha- I might have one other example, I think, on my list of that. It's stunning. It's really just crazy to me when this happens. Um, but I loved Pig. It's um, it's one that I have I have definitely recommended to people. But I do know that it's not necessarily everyone's cup of tea stylistically. Um, but if you go in with no expectations and just go along for the ride, I think it's a truly touching story. I loved it. It's my number eight. Pig. All right. There may be a reappearance. Okay. I wondered. So I wondered. Okay. I put it too low, didn't I? Eight's too low. It's probably too, It used to be our number one. All right. We're, we're to our sevens. Oh, yeah. Um. So my seven is licorice pizza. Um, Whoa. I, again, I'm worried maybe that's too low. <laughs> so it's it's been an interesting year because at first when I was creating this list I was like what do I have enough and then I had too many (laughs) I think everything's just a kind of a similar level there are fewer films that I love love loved and are like all-time favorites but 
a lot of like really solid films that are all sort of the same <laughs> like level. So anyway, Licorice Pizza ends up at seven. Um, yeah, it. I feel like we had to wait for this film forever, or at least I did, because it didn't come into um, Salt Lake until Christmas. Did we lose Aaron? We lost oh. Aaron, but that's okay. <laughs> well, I'll just keep going. He'll be back. Um, yeah, so this is a film about Alana and Gary Valentine. Um, so I guess 25-year-old woman, 15-year-old teenager who um, just kind of the hijinks they get into and the story of them basically falling in love in 1970s San Francisco. Um, yeah, it's really funny and charming. My brother and I went on Christmas Day and... Um, I feel like the rest of the theater didn't appreciate it quite as much because I was laughing throughout most of the movie um, over just really ridiculous things. Um, I think Paul Thomas Anderson was super smart in making, especially Lana Heim, the star of this movie. It has Bradley Cooper in it. It has Sean Penn in it. But both of them are used just a little bit for comedic effect. <laughs> um, and really, he just, like, Alana Haim is so incredible in this movie. Um, and it's her first role. And um, he really just, like, lets her shine in this and lets her take over. So I'm grateful that he, um, Paul Thomas Anderson, put the faith in her to actually pull that off. Because she's just the best part of this movie by far. Um, yeah. I don't know. I wrote down. <laughs> I, I think what's interesting about it, I was talking with a coworker about um, this movie, and he was like, I'm not sure what I was supposed to get out of this. <laughs> and I had a few thoughts, um, which are I mean, for me, Alana's trying to date all of these men that are more her age, but they're just as dumber, dumber <laughs> than like the kid that she actually wants to keep. <laughs> so it's like, you know, when you find a good guy, don't care what anyone else thinks about it, but follow your heart <laughs> and, you know, go with who you actually want to end up with. So um, anyway, I just found it really sweet and charming um, and a good watch, especially from tel from Paul Thomas Anderson, who whose stuff always leaves me like devastated and worried about the state of the world so yeah a good switch wonderful. up for him wonderful we love pta on this pod well except yeah. for aaron but um i mean if i really liked him i'd already probably go see the movie so obviously <laughs> i'm not a fan uh, i think we did a podcast once where we um, talked about what directors like our mount rushmore of directors and the criteria was like when they release a new movie you drop whatever you're doing and you see it opening weekend and your number one was paul thomas anderson so i believe um, that was the case and uh, <laughs> i am a fraud uh it was pre-pandemic this, pre this is my last episode on the pod pre-pandemic i've been kicked out oh. <laughs> yeah pre-pandemic that was pre pre-house sale so uh there you go. Was, there you go. <laughs> i couldn't comprehend this one was hard this one was hard to track down though i don't remember his past m movies being like mm. so the wide release was delayed so long. Mm. Like it had a six week rollout or something. Yeah. So, which is crazy. It's Paul Don't Thomas blame Anderson. you. Yeah. It took forever. Yeah. All right, Aaron, you're number seven. My number seven is, Oh, another Matt Damon film. Stillwater. We also Ooh. did an episode on this one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I thought, I just love this movie. I thought it was, uh, I just thought it was so much better than I expected. Um, and, and then it was all basically all on the shoulders of Matt Damon. He just gave maybe one of his best performances of his career. And 
nobody watched the movie. It was kind of crazy. Yeah. I feel bad for him almost. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we talked about this movie. It's all about uh, this stereotypical, um, I think he's from Texas or Oklahoma. Sorry, Oklahoma, he's from Oklahoma. Oklahoma um, yeah, roughneck fish out of water. He sure is. <laughs> and uh, he goes to, to France to find his daughter who's been, or to visit his, his daughter who's been uh, convicted of murder. Um, and uh, he's go, he goes there eventually to figure out who um, actually did the murder, and that's he wants to get her out of jail. And so that's the that's the whole movie itself. Um, it's all about how he, um, like you said, fish out of water. He goes into this new world and how he tries to fit in, and um, how he deals with this uh, the reality that his daughter's in prison and the fact that they have this fractured relationship that he's trying to mend. Um, so it, it's like there's multiple multiple fronts of the story and it's just I thought it was really interesting really well told um, great performances overall uh, very very entertaining movie so still water I would recommend it for anybody I think totally under, underappreciated and uh, go see it it's good all right still water Tom love McCarthy it. is so good at building tension with so little mm-hmm. <laughs> right because he's just trying to find out I mean I guess there's murder involved in this and I was thinking back to spotlight how you know he can make journalism look so interesting he's just so good at slowly building tension yeah i really liked that one more than i thought Mm -hmm. (laughs) based on the premise i wasn't sure what i was going to get out of it but yeah that's a fascinating movie it so easily could have been this paint by numbers story but he decides to throw a wrench into it and there's i don't know if it's as big uh, enough to call a plot twist but it just takes it in a direction that i didn't anticipate and and i just think it's such a better movie as a result like It's well, really he, like, gutsy. falls in love in Italy, mm-hmm. and then it's like a little family movie for a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's great. The family movie uh, in the middle is really heartwarming, but yeah, yeah, uh. wild stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our my number seven okay. is um, it's a Swiss Argentinian film by uh, first time director uh, Andreas Fontana or Fontana called Azor or Azor. Anyway, that's I forgot to put up my thumbnails here but here they are uh this is a recent watch of mine i i saw it was 100 percent rotten tomatoes i saw it was making some critics lists uh it's on this streaming service i think movie or something one of those obscure ones that had a free week trial so i used that to quickly watch this honestly i was blown away uh it's really incredible stuff so the the gist of it is this it takes place 1979 1980 in the middle of the uh, a uh, there's a dictatorship going on in Argentina. Uh, they don't ever say like the name of the dictator or anything like that, but there had been a military coup and there's a dictator in place. And so it follows your, the main character, uh, the protagonist, who's a Swiss banker who is traveling from Switzerland into Ar- uh, Argentina for two reasons. One, uh, his business partner at the bank has go- mysteriously gone missing. They have no idea where he is. And the second part of his mission there is to make new deals or, or to keep the clientele essentially happy uh, with the bank, with the Swiss bank, and to try and find drum up new business. And so he lands there. And what's remarkable about this movie is that you don't see violence. You know, there's no gun battles, nothing crazy. Everything's happening off screen. You follow this banker who is just trying to navigate what's going on, where is his colleague, and what's the status with the clientele in terms of their investments and what's going on. And 
what you quickly realize is that um, he, you know, he's meeting with the upper echelon of class in Argentina, a bunch of people who um, probably funded, helped fund the coup, but now regret it now that there's a dictator because every, there's a bunch of people that go mysteriously missing. They're called the disappeared, uh, which is, you know, um, a well-known period of time in history in Argentina during this, um, yeah, during their um, several different dictatorships that had happened during this time. But you're following this banker who's essentially trying to help the upper echelon of society hide their money from this new power. And uh, I, I don't want to say too much, but there, there's, there's this creeping dread in the film where you're expecting something to pop off at any moment. And it's weirdly tense. It's an absolute thriller. Um, and you're wondering, is he going to find his colleague? Are you going to figure out what's going on? What's he going to, you know, is he going to be the hero that's going to um, save his colleague or not maybe help uh, these super wealthy elites, uh, you know, like funnel their money out of the country. Um, but really, it's a series of conversations he has in different rooms, like generally at these like nice like uh, clubs or on golf courses or on, you know, these huge properties of these super rich people. And um, it's I know the way I'm describing it makes it sound not super exciting. I tonally this movie is perfect and the message in the end I won't reveal the ending is like ooh, uh, I don't want to call it a gut punch but it's incredible so it is uh, in it's subtitled of course there's some English in it but it's going to be mostly in French and in Spanish uh, you can find it again on movie it's called Azor and it is um, it, uh, apparently Azor is a Swiss slang for ask no questions or to be quiet and the role of a Swiss bank here is to be like, don't don't ask questions about what where the money came from or what's going on governmentally. We have one job to do, and it's to help manage these people's money. So don't get involved in the geopolitical aspect of it. But that's hanging over everything that's going on and every decision that the main character has to take. And watching him navigate that is pretty remarkable. So I uh, very fond of this movie. So it could be honestly, it could be higher on my list. I watched it yesterday, so it's the most recent watch. Um, is is azor have either of you seen this or even heard of it no okay like i said 100 percent rotten tomatoes uh heard of it because i keep getting emails for movie <laughs> oh really okay. and i'm like okay. nope i don't want to subscribe to another well now you have because... to well get the one watch this movie get the free week trial and then go on your apple subscriptions yeah. and cancel the subscription immediately after you start it and it will still give you the you still have the week you know? so that's that's my advice uh this well, is movie... yeah and movie is the streaming service that is going to be getting to Tom. <laughs> so I, yeah, it's got some really strange, like, um, international films. Oh, yeah. This one's <laughs> so, good. And that's awesome. Let's check that out. Um, yeah. So my number six, um, also going international here, uh, with a Danish film, uh, writers of justice. Yay. Um, it's, fantastic so um this is another one i don't want to give too much away and it's a little bit of a convoluted plot in the best way um but essentially the main character marcus who is played um by uh mads nicholson who's just great in everything mm -hmm. ever like mm -hmm. he's just the, a lot of this movie reminded me of another round that he was in last year um he's just fantastic always um but anyway he um his wife dies in a tragic train accident um so he's kind of taking care of his daughter 
and um and survivor from the wreck kind of comes forward and thinks that there was foul play that it ended up in this train accident that killed his wife um i'm trying to remember what marcus has this like a military sort of background so they get him on board to like kind of take revenge on the people who are supposedly responsible um for this train accident which has to do with the writers of justice this gang um anyway again more convoluted than that um i'm really a sucker for the story where all of these disparate events all actually like kind of coalesce and end up being related to each other and that's sort of what the movie is about like how the impact of events i don't know how one thing causes another thing causes another thing um the way the movie's framed kind of relates back to that um but yeah, like I said, the characters reminded me a lot of another round because you have these scientists mm-hmm. that are all trying to help kind of figure out what happened with this train accident. And they're all just sort of dorky and um, just lovable. And I got later in the movie and was like, if anything happens to any of this group, I'm going to be really <laughs> upset about it. I cared about them all so much. Um, it's really funny, but then at times kind of becomes more of an action movie at times is more of a family drama um so it's really a good mix of genre and i looked back at my letterbox review and i ended it with just in all caps therapy is important Um, because i think that's another another big like message of the film is that this guy is trying to get over the death of his wife and doesn't really know how to process it and you know he's acting out by like planning to take revenge on people when maybe there's a healthier way of overcoming his grief but not just people um, a, ga- a dangerous gang in denmark yes like, yeah yes. he starts a gang warfare so, yeah that's right yes there's gangs in denmark is that, yeah is that i know, we're supposed to I know. scandinavians <laughs> always surprise you yeah oh. anyway it's fantastic. Really took me by surprise, and I think that one's on Hulu too. So, yeah, oh, is it? Oh, good. Check it out. Yep. You guys are trying to get me to watch to sign up for Hulu. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to do it. I refuse. <laughs> they just get a lot of really strange international films. I don't know how it happens, yeah. but yeah, it's like okay, great. The ones they don't want to put on yeah. Disney Plus, and they put on Hulu. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Banned from and Disney Writers Plus. Writers of Justice is one they do not want to. They can't put. They can't put that one on Disney Plus. I don't think so. There's some pretty. Not, not next. Not in between Encanto and Soul. I don't think that's. I don't think that's how they <laughs> want to do their programming. Oh gosh. Uh, Aaron, so number six. Number six uh, is one of two documentaries that I have on my list. Mm. Um, it is Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. I am a huge, huge, huge Anthony Bourdain fan. Um, I love his books. I, I love his writing, his writing style, um, his TV shows. I've seen like hundreds, if not thousands of episodes. Um, I just find the man, like, he was fascinating. I thought he was incredibly entertaining, um, pretty insightful. And um, his, I just thought his life in general was, um, like, magical. The, the Basically, the, and this is, so this is a story about his life. And um, it's a documentary um, where they interviewed a lot of his close friends and uh, his ex-wife, and um, they they really just get into the meat of who uh, Anthony Bourdain was as a person, um, beyond the camera, beyond the interviews, beyond the writing, and um, he was just a really fascinating guy. He, what I found like really most fascinating about him was the fact that he didn't really get famous until he was in his forties. Like he he had an entire career of being a chef. 
Um, he always wanted to be a writer. Uh, he, he tried to write one a fiction novel that went nowhere. And then um, he kind of just stumbled upon magic. He wrote like a, like a uh, almost like a memoir. memoir Kitchen of, Confidential? Yeah, Kitchen <laughs> Confidential, which is an incredible book. If you've never read it, it's really entertaining, incredibly entertaining, um, really insightful. And he essentially like started this, the new wave of like celebrity chefs. Like he's the rock star celebrity chef. Um, where they're, you know, they're, they have tattoos and they do drugs and they live like the rock star lifestyle. It all, like the genesis of it was that book, Kitchen Confidential. Um, and he kind of like shined a light on it. And he said, like, this is what we're really doing. This is what's really happening. But after lights, after the doors close and after the last guest leaves, we're having a party. And we're um, like essentially hedonists, which is kind of like, I, I guess, you know, if you want to celebrate that or not, it's whatever. But he did, and he lived that lifestyle, and he, you know, he was a drug user, and he, um, he talks about that, he, how he, he made it out alive, and he's very grateful to um, being a chef. The, the, the work that he did, it delivered him through, um, like, these crazy moments in his life, and, and eventually he becomes, you know, he becomes like a celebrity, and he, he, he hosts these travel shows, which is all like an accident. It, he never meant to do any of that stuff. And uh, he stumbled upon it, and it's like something just clicked, and everybody realized like he had this special gift. And um, I think it really just came through in all his work, uh, how much he, how passionate he was about life and uh, humanity and um, and food. I think that's just like everything that he loved about life was uh, it was kind of like simple in a way. Um, and he really just made it seem magical. And I think that's what I, I liked about the guy. I just thought he was it's really profoundly funny. And um, and ultimately, um, you know, if you don't know, he did kill himself. He did commit suicide. Um, but in, And they kind of go into it. It's like, while we all enjoyed the laughs and we all thought he was this kind of clownish guy who loved life, the reality was he had something darker um, beneath it all. And he could never really shake it. He tried to. But it was always there. And uh, um, so that's kind of like an exploration of who he was as a, as a person and as a character. Uh, I just thought they, they handled it really well. And um, I found it really entertaining. And it was a, a really, really good movie. So I can't recommend it enough. Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. All right. Um, my number six. Paul Schrader's The Card Counter. Uh this is one of the films <laughs> on my list that has a massive disparity between the critic score on Rotten Tomatoes, which is 86%, and the audience score, which is like a lot lower. I think it's in the 40s. Uh, there's a lot I could say about this. It's best performance I've ever seen from Oscar Isaac. It's a movie that you can't possibly imagine what direction it's going. Um, <laughs> it's not mainstream fair. I had two experiences uh, this year in the cinemas where there was an audible reaction in the audience when the credits rolled that was very negative. This was one of them. And uh, I, I will say I, I, <laughs> that makes me happy in this case because uh, on the one part you have this very straightforward uh, card counting poker movie. In fact, we have a character that makes it to the championship of the World Series of Poker. Uh, and I can tell you there were a lot of people in the theater that I watched it with that were excited for that movie. Uh, when in reality, this is a movie about a lot of, not at all. It's not at all a movie about poker. 
this is a movie about this tortured soul who's trying to reckon with the atrocities that he was a part of it, and if you put it I guess sympathetically uh, was ordered to commit in Abu Ghraib um, the torture of alleged terrorists uh, many people who ended up not being terrorists at all um, that were tortured in unspeakable ways and he is trying to reckon and atone for those sins and he does that by the way of this relationship with this uh, younger person played by Ty, uh, was it Ty Sheridan um, I want almost said Taylor Sheridan of Yellowstone fame, but that's <laughs> incorrect. Um, but I will say the without giving away too much, um, the big moment where people wanted to be a poker movie, and then it's all of a sudden not that. Uh, it was incredible. It's a choice that for me, it's <laughs> you don't even see a game, a certain game finish. Uh, Oscar Isaac walks away, and you're reminded, who cares about poker? When Abu Ghraib happened, and it's still unaccounted for. The people who ordered this have paid zero price for these terrible atrocities, uh, these things that we did that go against everything that America is supposed to stand for. And I love that there's a lot of message. There's a million different messages you can get out of this film. But for me personally, what I loved was that Paul Schrader was like, yeah, I know what you want. I know you want this movie, and this seems fun. But why are we caring about this when this other thing is still we have to reckon with? And he does that through the form of this character, Oscar Isaac's playing, reckoning with that. And he reckons with it in a, well, I'll just say a heck of a way. Um, but that resonated with me, especially in a year where we're commemorating 20 years since 9-11. And I've taken a, I've watched a lot of documentaries, a lot of 9-11 content where we can see, which reminded me of how I felt on 9-11 and that desire for revenge for blood to go after the people who attacked us made us feel this vulnerable you know and then being okay uh, i was young and dumb in high school but being okay with a lot of the decisions the government made in the aftermath of that now i can look on those 20 years and realize how blinding revenge can be and that bloodlust can be um and how we made we did some terrible committed awful atrocities and still are doing so in the wake of that desire for revenge and this movie um hits on that theme it uh, in some ways it go it kind of goes after that and i love i just love the idea of being like we shouldn't we honestly don't we don't deserve to sit around and be entertained by poker when we still have this to figure out we have to reckon with this and we have to hold the people responsible uh, uh, accountable so i love it i love paul schrader uh i was huge on first reformed i, I wouldn't put this quite as good as first reformed which is a close to masterpiece to me but i loved it uh, like i said oscar isaac's best performance that i've ever seen so that's my number six film the card counter that one um it's still my top 20 like that's another one that's just outside but now i have to tell quickly the story of how i saw that film and again could hear the audience reaction like mm -hmm. not really loving this film this is the only time in my life where some the person then sitting you know two seats away from me because of covid um, kind of leans over then after the movie's over and goes, well, that was a huge waste of time, wasn't it? And I said, no, I loved it. And then I leave the theater and two more people go, wait, can we talk to you about how much we hated this? And I'm like, why did complete strangers decide to tell me how much they didn't like this movie? I'll never know. But I love it. I got to defend it multiple times. <laughs> I love I love the request to stop and talk. I've, that's only happened to me once in my entire life. It was in San Francisco in downtown watching The Lighthouse. And there were two guys, only two other guys in the theater. And I got up to leave, you know, credits roll. I get up, they're like, whoa, hey, whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on. They like literally like, where are you going? Like, we have to have a conversation about what we just saw. And I was like, I, I don't know. And they're like, but The Mermaid. I was like, I don't know. I, do I told you I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know. 
And I like walked out. I was like, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Robert Pattinson's great. That's though. a fair reaction to that movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was just wild. Anyway. Um, okay. Our, we're, we're our top five. five right? Here it is. Let's get Yay. top five films of 2021. Great. Um, so my number five is my cheat. Um, so it is In the Heights and West Side Story. Okay. <laughs> but we'll I have it. a good reason because both of these are musical adaptations about American in- immigrants who fall in love and try to make it work even though there's racism and gentrification in New York City. Those are very, very related things. <laughs> so with all the overlap, I love them both so much. I'm like, yeah, they're basically the same movie. Um, In the Heights is fantastic. I think that um, that musical has so much energy, um, similar to Hamilton, um, also from Blimbo Mel Miranda. And I just appreciated the way that it was directed so that it doesn't, it lets it lean into the musical elements of it without just being on stage. <laughs> it still, you know, is kind of in New York City, but there are points where it's like, nah, we're just going to stop right here and do a big dance number in a swimming pool. And, you know, you're going to be okay with that. But often it, you know, kind of works it in more naturally into the setting. Um, so that was fun. And then um, West Side Story, I'll say, I'm sure both of you heard this from me the entire year where so I watched the original West Side Story for the first time this year and I thought there is no this is five star movie there's no reason to redo this film it's as relevant today as it ever has been why would anyone try to miss perfection and Steven Spielberg although he's a genius his last couple of years his last couple of movies over the last couple of years though I was like I'm doubtful of this man <laughs> can you know who did Ready Player One can take this on and make it work but man was I wrong um, it was just fantastic and although I still love the original and probably prefer it I think this new version um, does a lot of he made a lot of choices that um, I mean first of all I think um show more respect to the Latinx community by, you know, actually putting Latino actors in the film instead of Natalie Wood, um, by having Spanish in the film that's not subtitled. Um, Mm. So there's that aspect of it. But I think the framing of the movie and a couple of other elements of it, um, I don't know, just hit on the themes even more. Um, And actually kind of make you rethink the Jets a little bit too and where they're coming from. Um, Anyway. But it's another one where, again, I think a lot of it's like more naturalistic and uses the setting of New York very well. But then it's like, now we're just going to stop and do a huge dance number in the middle of the street. Um, and as a big fan of musicals, I'm like, yes, please just give me all of that dancing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, that was really fantastic. A lot of great talent in both of those. So, great. yep. Which it was one, a great year which, for Which musicals. is the better film, though? I mean... Uh, I prefer In the Heights yeah. of the two, probably. Um, that was on HBO Max. I've watched it multiple times <laughs> since. So, um, yeah. I, I think I probably still like that one better, but great. they're both great. Well, yeah. All right. Number Aaron, five. Number five. Number five is a movie you mentioned earlier, Pig. Oh, yeah. 
Um, yeah, and I agree with everything you said. I think, and it also I think it goes hand in hand with the, with Anthony Bourdain oh, whole totally. uh, celebrity worship of chefs. So, um, and that's part of like the appeal of a pig, right? So we have these celebrity, uh, a celebrity chef, the master of his art, um, who has become a recluse. And uh, like you said, I expected a John Wick type of movie. I know I didn't even watch the trailer for this movie. Um, I just heard your recommendation of it, and I said I'm going to watch this. Um, and uh, man, was I surprised! I, I thought this movie was phenomenal. Um, it's the best Nicolas Cage in many, many years. Uh, just everything about it is just so unexpected. Um, I just thought it was a total gem, and um, I can't praise it enough. I thought uh, it, it actually, I actually considered it for my number one. Um, but the the only reason I put it at number five is I don't think I can rewatch it. I don't think it has that rewatch appeal. Yeah. And I, for me personally, to to put it in that top tier, you have to be rewatchable. So, um, but other than that, I mean, it's a fantastic film. So it's good. a great journey, and it's totally worth your time. So yeah, go watch Pig. I think you'll be entertained. That's great. Uh, my number five. It's actually the has the lowest Rotten Tomato score of any of the films on my top ten at eighty three percent. Ooh, that's trash. Uh, <laughs> Denis Villeneuve's Dune. Um, <laughs> so uh, what can you say about Dune that hasn't been said already on this podcast on, on every other podcast? It was the best big budget fair of the year, no doubt. Uh, I, I, the, only, the only missed note of this film isn't even in the film. It's in the marketing of the film. And that's just better explaining that this was going to be a part one, which they had for whatever reason shied away from. So it was a little bit jarring when it ended when it when it did for me because it was like oh oh okay of course they're not going to adapt all of it into one movie but i wish they would have been clear that that was the intent um leading up to it and then i think they added a part one to the to the title of it but knowing that now again it's not the film's fault that's the marketing but you get great oscar isaac um you get wonderful timothy chalamet honestly the best i've ever seen i, I mean since Ladybird, which of course I, I love that movie and everything about it, um, the since world... Homeland season one is, is he in Homeland? Season Actually, one? season two. Sorry, he's in Homeland season oh, two. Yeah, or I should say, yeah, he best he's been since Interstellar as Casey Affleck. Oh yes, which is <laughs> crazy. I know. I, I watched it. Watched it recently. I was like, whoa, Timothy! Holy cow! <laughs> Forgot about that. Um, anyway. Um, I love, yeah, I mean, Dune, Dune's incredible. Uh, it's certainly rewatchable. Watched it many times uh, on HBO Max. I saw the Esquire IMAX theater for my first showing, and I'm, which I'm really glad I did. Um, and uh, I really look forward to the second part. I mean, this is the unadaptable book, and Denis did it for part one. I mean, he absolutely crushed this adaptation. Visually, it's stunning. The characters, the action, everything is wonderful. I don't think you could have asked for a better adaptation, truly. Other than, of course, Lynch's yep. 80s adaptation, which is still superior. Uh, that's a joke. I think so. But my no, number no. five is... Not right. for my father. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. We're to our four. Number four. Yeah. Um, my number four is The Green Knight. Um, Ooh. Which, after... <laughs> I don't think it would have been this high had I only seen it once. I'm very glad I had a repeat viewing because I think this film is so dense. It deserves multiple viewings. Mm -hmm. um, so I got a degree in English and I can remember <laughs> having to read this poem, Arthurian legend in my medieval um, 
I English literature class. Um, and I'll tell you what, I hate medieval literature and it was painful. And I remember just hating every minute of it. Um, so the fact that David Lowry was able to create something that's so visually stunning and just a really beautiful, it, again, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about with power of the dog that it's what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be brave? What does it mean to be, um, like adventurous and um you know it's kind of redefining you know what true bravery and heroism is um and it's again i like a film that doesn't you know give it to you easy <laughs> it's like you actually kind of have to piece together what's happening throughout this um there are certain scenes in it there's a part um where there's kind of this pan around the yeah. forest and it starts with dev patel um, on the ground tied up um, you know these people have come and taken his horse and whatnot and left him there and it pans around and then he's a skeleton and it pans around again and it's just one of the most stunning scenes I've seen this year um, and the whole ending too that I won't give away but um, again it's just like so beautiful to watch um yeah so looks beautiful there's a whole lot um again i went with my brother to this and then we just we talked about it for quite a bit afterward trying to kind of piece together um everything that had happened um yeah and last note deb patel's hair is the true hero of the story i love deb patel and he does not get enough credit for how suave and sexy he can be <laughs> this film was a true showcase i mean he gets <laughs> like, not for me yeah. he doesn't i mean that's that's the one thing we always talk about <laughs> he's, uh, he's a 10 on the sexy factor absolutely yes yes yep. he is no doubt <laughs> so yeah there's my number four great very good choice for my number four um it's dune believe it or not dune dune part one i should say thank you thank you yes dune part one uh this is a movie where i had high expectations going into it probably one of the top movies that i look forward to throughout the year and it blew me away i mean it it, it exceeded every expectation that i had um it was better writing the adaptation I, i've never read the original so i don't i can't compare it to the book but again, it's talked about as an unadaptable movie, like you, uh, unadaptable novel. Um, and I just see what it, uh, the amount of work that went into it, uh, true craftsmanship. Um, the, the characters are fascinating. Uh, the, the, the effects themselves are really like spectacular. I don't know it, if they did a lot of CGI work or practical effects. I honestly couldn't tell. Like that's how it's a mark for me is like, can you tell when something is green screened versus yeah. when there's a puppet in front of you? And this movie is like, it feels like it dances on the line. I don't even know what's real, what's CG. And I love that. I thought that was brilliant. Um, the camera work, flawless. Uh, great editing. Pacing is phenomenal. The amount of, the amount of, you want to talk about dense. The amount of stuff that they covered in this movie while not getting stuck in the weeds is like, that's the hard, maybe the hardest thing to do. Um, when you talk, uh, I mean, very few times has it been accomplished well. We're talking Lord of the Rings, um, and maybe Dune is like the, the two of the best that it's ever done on yeah. film. Um, because again, you have so much lore. I imagine, I, again, I haven't read the original, but 
um, there's there's a whole world that's built in the in the course of two and a half hours or however long this movie is, and it feels like it's served well. Um, and I think that's all you can really ask uh, at the end of the day. And I love that it's a part one because I can't wait for part two. So I love this movie a lot. Uh, Dune was my number four. That's great. Also, Denny's working with like the dream team of casts here. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe second to Don't Look Up, but like giving reps, you know, <laughs> it's like giving. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, Meryl Streep and Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence aren't in this. No, Tim. Oh no, Timothy Chalamet's in it. Uh, oh yeah, they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. No, Mark Rylance. No, no Mark Ari- Rylance hair. Yeah. No Ariana Grande. No Ariana no. Grande. No. 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 What a miss. Um, it feels like Pete uh, Davidson was in Don't Look Up, but he wasn't. still feels like he was. I think um, he was cut. He was cut. Yeah, from his the, part he was recast. Cut, yeah. He was originally yeah, the Timothy Chalamet Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Actually, um, he was the Leo character, and they recast him. <laughs> but ima- I mean, oh on gosh. the fringes, imagine having having Javier Bardem, okay? Yeah. Academy Award winner. Yeah. One of our great actors. And, like, you know, he's in this. I'm sure he'll Ricky play a much more significant part in part two. But he's, the screen time isn't great. It's not – I mean no. – He's not in it very much, but oh. the parts he sprinkled in, he's excellent, and he he's able to cook in the in the limited amount of screen time. But you also got Jason Momoa, Josh Brolin. You got these people that lead uh, films on their own, mm-hmm. and giving them enough screen time without it feeling like he's trying to. You know, it, it, I thought it was a remarkable balance of both source material as well as talent. Uh, right, and I mean, we hear about Josh stunt Brolin, casting. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We hear about stunt casting all the time, and you could easily fall into that trap with like you said Josh Brolin um, or a lot more Jason Momoa oh yeah never feels like that at at any point so I knew Denis meant business when he um, when he didn't shy away from how short Josh Brolin is in real life (laughs) there was no he didn't no angles no CGI after the fact I mean that man is running out there all of five foot eight and I was here for it I love he's running a battle about a foot shorter than every other soldier and I'm like yes like representation is important Um, (laughs) we stand a short king (laughs) Uh, yeah I was yeah it's like Thanos when you when you can do that when you play Thanos and then you can play a very you know kind of a short commander of sorts i i thought it was yeah anyway wonderful wonderful um <laughs> uh any other thoughts on dune before i move on to my number four okay no, i think my, we hit it all number four has been mentioned already and it's the danish film writers of justice i have been telling everyone who will listen to me to watch this movie and honestly very few people in fact, I can count the number of people who have listened to me, and that's one, and that was Shannon. Thank you, Shannon. <laughs> but it made my list. I know. See? I love it. Everyone should listen to and you. you know what? If Aaron had watched call. it, it would have made his list, and if Skylar had a list <laughs> and he had watched it, it would certainly be on it as well. Yeah. I'm, I, lo- I, I love this movie. A lot of it had to do with not even knowing what I was getting myself into. There's all kinds of twists and turns. There's a big twist I didn't see coming. Uh, it is weirdly like... Tonally, which is so difficult to do, this is a film that is darkly humorous. It's also really unsettling and heartbreaking, and then the equal parts heartwarming, and you feel for this group of people that really becomes a family, quite literally. I mean, not literally, but like they become their own like kind of unit that cares about each other, and it's amazing that it works in that way because there's a lot of unsettling things that happen. And you had you talked about the setup, you very um, very eloquent in the setup of the train crash and everything. But it's still, I mean, it, it cracks yes. me up that 
that one of the survivors in the train runs a statistical analysis about the chances of a train crash happening and the fact that he noticed a man had left that stopped before that looked suspicious if I remember correctly and he they find out he's a member of this gang Riders of Justice and they present this to Mads Mikkelsen who's mourning the loss of his wife in what was a seemingly tragic accident to be like look we ran a statistical calculation it's next to impossible that this was just a random event given that this no this guy from a known violent group was on the train and then left right before we think that this was a bomb that was planned or whatever it was and Mads Mikkelsen with his military background immediately is like let's find those responsible and bring them to justice <laughs> and boy does he and in, in the yeah. and through that process you get to know these these nerds that ran the statistical calculation this meathead Mads Mikkelsen who's just like absolutely terrible at expressing himself and his emotions and his feelings He's trying to keep his relationship with his daughter intact, who can see him unraveling. He needs, absolutely needs therapy. Um, and all, all the while, I'm laughing throughout because of the shenanigans happening. Um, it's also like really violent. It's, 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 a, it's a ride. It's got it all. But by the end, I was like emotional after laughing and being horrified. And I was emotional at the end. It just has it all. It's really terrific. I'm going to go ahead and say it's my favorite Danish film of all time. I think that's safe to say. Number one Danish film. Number two is another round from last year. <laughs> the only two Danish films I've seen, but that's okay. Um, so yes, Writers of Justice. I don't know where you can find. I mean, you can find it on iTunes. I'm not sure. If, did you say it was on Hulu? Actually, it's on Hulu. Okay, perfect. Yep, uh, it's on Hulu. Uh, is that American Hulu or Danish Hulu? No, yeah, yeah. That's all. The American same. Hulu. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right, we are to our top three. Oh, yay. Um, my number three is Together Together. Oh, um, yes. Oh. Which we, I just realized, have already talked about because we did a Sundance pod. Um, it was my favorite from Sundance. It was still, it still remained really high on the list. Um, that's another one that's on Hulu, I believe. <laughs> Everything's on Hulu this year. Um, so I've watched it several times since. Um it's it's just a delight. I've realized um, in recent years, especially due to 2020, that I just like a nice comfort movie sometimes. And this is this is a really nice comforting movie. Um, it's about Ed Helms, who's a single man in his 40s and decides, you know, he doesn't really have prospects for getting married or having a relationship, and so um, he gets a surrogate and decides to have a child um, and it's kind of the relationship that forms between Ed Helms and the surrogate. And um, it's just really sweet. And there aren't enough films about platonic friendships. Um, and I, it's just kind of quirky as most <laughs> Sundance movies are, um, but just very much my jam. So if you need a nice warm, like hug of a movie, then together together is it. That's my three. What? And uh, it, it's when did they uh, came out? The, was that actually at Sundance this last mm -hmm. year? Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. This one I invited my yep. mom participated in several of my Sundance screenings, but I gave her the list of what I was planning on watching, and this was the top of her list. And so it was her very first movie, uh, very first Sundance experience, uh, was watching Together Together, and she loved it. I loved it. <laughs> Wonder. It's not. It's not just outside of my top ten. So it's definitely in my top fifteen. But like you said, everything, I mean, I agree with every single thing you said. It's really a wonderful comfort movie. And there's not a, an ounce of fat on the film. It's really like, it's, 
perfect. The the length, everything in it, it's really great. Uh, it's a expertly crafted and very funny, very moving. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, my number three is also a hug of a feel-good movie, uh, The Card Counter. Yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> totally feel-good movie. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I felt good watching the tease and the inspiration. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, you know, everything David said, I agree with. It's, I mean, it's, it's just a great movie. I, I can't, uh, I mean, it's hard to um, express more, uh, like, I think there's there's certain filmmakers that work today that really I just mm -hmm. like connect with and Paul Schrader for whatever reason I I just like I'm on that wavelength with him and I will go on any ride that he wants to take me on even a, and even this a, is a game of Zoom poker with Paul Dano oh my god <laughs> <laughs> incredible story incredible story oh, I would pay anything to read those uh, to be sit in oh. on that Zoom poker, poker chat. Uh, before he got kicked out, not after. Yes, of course. Oh my uh, gosh. After it was insufferable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I just think Paul Schrader's genius. I think, uh, you know, he's, he's a man of his own time and, um, and maybe that doesn't necessarily jibe with, you know, current, uh, filmmaking trends, but I don't care. Like he tells an incredible story and that's what the card counter is. It's a character study and it's about a flawed individual and um, like everything you said, like he's trying to make amends and he's trying to like fill this void, this uh, um, this hole that he has inside of him, this trauma, this PTSD from all these things that he experienced in life. And uh, the way he does it is through playing, playing poker and being a mentor to this kid. And uh, the movie itself is just really interesting. I thought it was a really fascinating journey. Um, but yeah, I just loved it. I thought it was just phenomenal. Um, not a, it's pretty much a downer. But that's okay. I, I like downer movies, so it's I it's the most Aaron film of twenty twenty one for mm -hmm. sure. Like, Easily <laughs> watching it, I was like, Aaron is going to love every that's bit it. of this movie. Yeah. Uh, truly, yes. I, I, we should be more great. I should be more grateful that a, a movie star like Oscar Isaac is is making movies like starring in movies like this because I know there wasn't great financial incentive to be in the card counter. But he is so outstanding in the, like I can't. I know I said it's my. I think it's his best performance ever. I stand by that. But he, man, I mean, this is so many other actors wouldn't touch this role, and I'm so glad that he he did because I can't think of anyone better. But all right, my number three, The Green Knight. Uh, I talked about two films having terrible audience reaction, one of them being The Card County. The other one was Green Knight. That was a <laughs> literally a woman that turned around and yelled out to the rest of the crowd, was that the worst two hours you've ever spent in a movie? And uh, I wanted to yell back two and, two and a half hours, actually. No, I, I, actually, I, don't, I don't know how long. Um, but it was, I've just, it was a real, uh, audible, again, audible negative reaction from the audience. We love David Lowery here on this pod. Uh, I've been ride or die since Ain't Them Bodies Saints. I loved The Great Night, my, again, third favorite film of the year. I love that uh, David Lowry decides to make an adaptation where he doesn't stick to the same ending as what's in the original Arthurian legend. He makes it his own, and quite frankly, he makes what I think is a better ending than the actual text, and I didn't see it coming. I totally expected, like, you know, Joel Edgerton's character was going to, you know... I thought he was going to be some sort of reveal at the end that would have gone along with the actual story, but that's not what happens. And I won't reveal what happens, but what happens is so much more powerful, so much more emotionally resonant and so much more impactful. 
uh, because it ends on this moment and this comment that was just haunt. It's haunted me. The last words of the film truly haunt me in, in a good way. And uh, it, it's really something else. Dev Patel, we've talked about how great he is, but the character he's playing isn't great. Uh, it's a very flawed person who wants to be remembered. He cares about his legacy. Obviously, he's adjacent to the round table, at least in the in the movie. He's not yet a knight. But it, when you have an uncle, that's, you know, the king of Camelot, you know, it's like a cast a long shadow. But he jumps at this opportunity to uh, make a name for himself. And he boy, is there a, a cost to that opportunity. And uh, as he kind of goes on that journey, um, I mean, you remarked, Shannon, on that shot, which is like the pan heard around the world, that panning shot, because I've had more conversations about that single shot than any other single shot in cinema in 2021, for sure, about what it meant or just about how amazing it was. You see the seasons change as you see him kind of tied up next to that tree and it goes all the way around so slowly. And you know at the end, you're either going to see he has escaped, the you know, being tied up and he's on his journey, or he's dead. And you start to hear flies and things before the pan turns where you know the result before you actually see it. And the ingenious audio, I mean, the way the sound is mixed, it's perfect. And you turn and you see a skeleton and, and there's so many different ways of reading what that means. And it also doesn't, it doesn't slow down the film. I mean, it's not a fast film to begin with, but it weirdly, he's able to pick up the movie and keep going without having to stop and consider what had just happened. Or, you know, it's, I don't know how exactly you'd explain away that shot, but it is like one of those shots that's going to be on the highlight reel of 2021 films for me is just this epic turnaround, this pan. It's really something. And I think, the themes of the movie, I don't want to get too much into it because I'd get into spoiler territory, but I think it really is perfect. Uh, it has a, that one shot alone has a lot to say. Um, but yeah, I, I really, really love this movie. It's not for everyone. It's not going to be the most enjoyable. And generally, I'm with Aaron. I like the most rewatchable films to be in my top three or so. This isn't... A to it's rewatchable in the sense that I definitely had to see it a second time and I enjoyed it a lot more. I enjoyed it the first time even more the second time it's a rich text so it does require multiple viewings but it's i don't know if it's one i'm going to be revisiting like every year you know it's not like fellowship of the ring you just pop it in for a good time to see if frodo's gonna you know make it to mount doom it's not that type of thing you're not really like oh i want to go on gerwin's journey with him uh but it's nonetheless breathtaking filmmaking from david lowry and i'm so grateful people are giving him money to be able to tell these stories because it's no not the most mainstream fair and like I said, not one I can recommend necessarily to everyone, but I think it's a, it's just really marvelous. So that's my number three. Um, all right, top two. Yeah. Hi. So my number two is Pig, and I yeah. feel like you both already put it wonderfully. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been, it was in my number one spot for a very long time. Um, yeah, I guess the only thing I would add to everything that you both said is that there's a scene where the thing that I keep coming back to is there's a scene where Nick Cage um, sits down with this um, restaurant owner that serves truffles in his restaurant. And so he thinks that he might know something about what happened to his truffle pig. Um, and he, I guess this person was like a mentee of Nick Cage's. And he basically just kind of takes him down saying like, 
but is this restaurant really what you want to do? Like you talked about having a pub and don't you remember like what your dish was going to be? And like, why does all of this matter if you don't get to do the thing that you love? Um, and so essentially I was just really like both of you said, I wasn't expecting this movie to, to be that I was expecting a John Wick sort of thing and, you know, a really wild, crazy, crazy time. And what I got, um, especially I, I had like a busy time at work and I decided to take a day off and just go to this movie and was just hit like so hard with this message of like, but if you don't love it, what is the point of doing it? Um, and that just, that just really got to me. So yep. Super impressive that this was, you know, a first feature too. And yeah, it's just a really good reminder that Nick Cage can be incredible. Oh, <laughs> when so he's good. given material that he really cares about. So, yep, excellent film. Great. Oh, I love seeing it that high. That's great. Huh. Aaron, what's your number two? Number two is <laughs> The Green Knight. There it is. Yay. Yeah, I had to do it. It's a uh, phenomenal. Is that the first film that's on all three of our lists? I think so. I think it might be, yeah. yeah okay. I mean, it, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, what, what more can you say about David Lowry? I think he's uh so what I will say is um I do I do love his work. I think he's a great director uh, or he's a really good director, but there's always something in his movies that is like for me personally, it's just missing. Like there's something that is like there's just some element that I don't totally click with. <clears throat> and then with the Green Knight I thought he had me on teetering throughout the entire movie. I felt like, what is like, what is, what are we doing here? Like, this is leading up to something, obviously. And I felt like there's no way whatever comes at the very end is going to be fulfilling enough to, for me personally, to enjoy this entire journey that we were on. And then we get to the final scene or the final like 20 minutes or so. And like my jaw dropped. I, I couldn't believe how masterfully he tied this entire story up it's like the, the amount of um it's like the, the skill it takes to wrap this whole story up to create this whole world and then like put a little bow on it that's just like f almost flawless and in, in the in the sense that like it serves everything that we were just told for the last two and a half hours or whatever it was um it's just like such a unique skill and i think that like to me this is David Lowry like stepping up his game. Um, I I've been, I was a huge fan of Old Man and the Gun. I loved Ain't Them Body Saints. Ghost Story was really interesting. I like that too. But like this to me is like very clearly his best work. Um, and I think he's just getting better. And it's just like you can tell that he is on the rise. Um, and this movie is like it just really worked. Really, really worked for me. And the way that he just pulled it all together at the end just left me so incredibly impressed. So yeah, I think it deserves to be in everybody's top three. I think it was just a phenomenal performance and uh, just a great, great film. Wonderful. Wonderful. So glad that's on all three of our lists. Mm -hmm. oh, I love that movie. Uh, my number two is Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza. <laughs> and uh, what more can we say? Uh, I, I, I haven't, I, I meant to bring up this, the theme of memory um, more often because I think that in a lot of the movies I've gone through, uh, it applies, um, but it certainly does here in the sense that for me, this felt like a retelling of a great summer memory, like someone like Cooper Hoffman's character or uh, Alana Himes character, the way that it's kind of shot, it's almost like it's 
not it's not fuzzy around the edges, but it definitely feels like it's just a really fond memory of a of a time long past. And I like that. I love that. It's a great summer movie. I also love Paul Thomas Anderson. Not that anyone was doubting him, but like the last three movies, you know, he's has starred uh, Daniel Day Lewis, Joaquin Phoenix, and then Daniel Day Lewis again. You know, it's like can Bill Belichick do it without Tom Brady? You know? And so he's like, how about two people who have never acted in a motion picture, uh, full length, you know, motion picture, you know, and 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 then he does it. It's like Bill Belichick taking, you know two people who've never played football and put them in a quarterback, both of them, a dual threat, a dual quarterback system, you know, which is just, that's going to be failure. Right. And uh, he absolutely pulls it off. Now that's to take nothing away from the two leads. Uh, Alana Haim is incredible in this film cast perfectly. Uh, I mean, it's, I, I'm, it seems like he wrote the part for her and I think he had her in mind from what I understand in his interviews, but she is just uh, pitch perfect in this really. Uh, Cooper Hoffman's also wonderful. And you can see the, you can see the shades of Philip Seymour Hoffman in there in these moments and these certain um, emotions or these faces he makes, and it really almost made me emotional. Philip Seymour Hoffman is one of my favorite, if not my favorite actor ever. Uh, truly great, and so to see his his um, his son being a Paul Thomas Anderson film and not screw it up, you know, not the the weight of that responsibility and those expectations, I couldn't imagine how he felt, and he's wonderful in in his role. And it's it's really it's a heartwarming movie and it's fun and it's funny and it's endearing and you know it doesn't reinvent filmmaking you know it's not it's not going to be one that people are going to point to as this monumental moment in cinema or anything but it's it's just nice to see Paul Thomas Anderson have a good time for two hours and make a movie that makes you happy and that's what this is and he sprinkles in a couple of big stars like Sean Penn and Bradley Cooper Tom Waits who are all there's like a perfect amount of each one of those people in this. It's just like really wonderful. Same thing with uh, Safdie, Benny uh, Safdie, who's great in this. And uh, uh, it's just a really good ride. And so uh, it's definitely a rewatchable for me. And I look forward to continued viewings of it. Um, so, yeah, my number two, Licorice Pizza. All right. We're at the moment. The number one movie of 2021. I'm excited to hear. Uh, Sh- Shannon, what do you got? Yeah, um, so I'm going to have a short preamble here. Um, I feel like there have been several years. I get so frustrated with movies that aren't released in the U.S. until later on because I've been burned a couple of times where, like, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, one of my favorite films ever, and, you know, didn't come out until later the next year, so I wasn't able to put it on the list. So the movie Worst Person in the World... I have heard a lot about it, seen the trailer for it, and was like, I have a feeling if I can just find this movie somewhere that this looks like totally my jam. I found this movie and it is totally my jam. <laughs> um, this might be a little recency bias too, um, but I I would just, just I it, it got me and I, and I finished it and wanted to just sob for an hour <laughs> with wow. how much that film touched me. Um, so yeah, worst person in the world currently is is my number one. Um, you found it on the dark web. I found it on the dark web. And you watched it. No, you bless. Saw, was this like yesterday? This is like this morning. Wow. <laughs> this is why number I'm, one. This I is love why, it. This oh. is why I'm saying recency bias. Maybe later I'll be like, oh, what was I thinking? But I can already tell you, I'm like, 
stick that in again. I'll watch it again right this second. Wow. Um, yeah, bless the person who uploaded their award screener. <laughs> I was like, it's got to be on there somewhere. Um, Thanks, Barack Obama. Anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, anyway, this is a film about a woman named Julie. Again, this is tailor-made for me. I'm 31 years old. I'm single. I have a lot in my life to figure out. <laughs> and um, Julie is around 30, and it really just covers a couple of years in her life and her trying to get it together. Um, I think it's been billed as kind of a romantic comedy, which it is, but it's also like really you have to find out what you want for yourself like finding the right person isn't going to solve anything if you don't know what you want um is essentially what it comes down to um it's framed as there's a prologue and then 12 chapters and an epilogue so being a fan of like wes anderson and that type of thing um i kind of liked that setup um but again i just thought the lead actress in this is really great um it 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 just got me and struck a chord <laughs> really hard. Um, so yeah, that comes out in February. <laughs> so we're gonna watch it. Um, but yeah, unless you can find it earlier. <laughs> so it hits U.S. theaters in February, um, or mm-hmm. is it a streaming somewhere? Okay, mm-hmm. theaters. Oh, yep. Yeah, this has been on a lot of critics lists, and it's one of those ones where it's like, like Drive yeah. My Car is just like, well, I guess maybe I'll put it on my list next year because so- I frustrating though yeah it, it is super it, frustrating yeah yeah but. and i should count up it's from neon and i feel mm. i was gonna say pig is also from neon mm-hmm. Tatan is from neon oh, yeah. um they've just been killing it it's almost surpassed a 24 for me but like you know since parasite and they're just rocking it so they're awesome, but they need to put out their films earlier <laughs> instead of holding on to them until the last minute. So no kidding. Anyway, yep. Wow. Okay. So it's worst person in the world. What's the how's what's the title? The worst person the, in the world. The worst person in the world. Okay. Wonderful. Yep. From Walking speaking, Trier. Speak, speaking of the worst person in the world, it's my turn. Uh, <laughs> Number one on my list. <laughs> number one on my list is the other documentary that I have, uh, Val. Whoa! Yay! Yes. Oh, I should have watched it before. Oh man, so good. This is again, like Shannon said, I, I might have recency bias for me too because I watched this last night, and I was blown away. I was absolutely floored at how good this documentary was. Um, so, if anyone doesn't know, this is the life story of Val Kilmer. Um, he decided a long time ago that he was just going to start videotaping his life. And so for the past, oh, I don't know, 40 years, <laughs> he's been periodically just pulling out a video camera and recording his experiences. So what he did, and, and his goal was to eventually, at some point in his life, in his later years, to put out a documentary about all his life experiences. So he is a very introspective guy. He's... Um, really in touch with the spiritual side and he's like uh very he's very artistic and he's like he is like the true classically trained actor who is like um almost like not of this earth he is like he's a renaissance man um essentially and so one of his his first love was like acting and playwriting and he went to juilliard he grew up in los angeles in the valley here in chatsworth and um he's like if you 
in, throughout the course of this documentary, you see like who his contemporaries were throughout his entire life. And we're talking about Kevin Bacon and um, Sean Penn, like we mentioned earlier. Um, it's just all these big names. Anyone that was a big name in the 80s and 90s that came up like a traditionally classical, classically trained artist, uh, actor, he was like, he was with them. So he was doing stage plays and he was also writing and, and um, eventually he gets his big break and uh, he's in Top Gun and like he has video from all of these times. Like he's hanging out in the dressing room, um, running lines for Top Gun and like uh, he's next to Tom Cruise and they're all like, you know, this is like, it's really fascinating to get a, to get a backstage look at what this actor was going through at a time where he was a nobody. He was just trying to establish himself and then like being an A-lister and then like falling back down. Um, Cause he, at, at different points he goes over like the choices he made to make certain movies. And he talks about the stuff that he regrets. Oh, and, and like, I forgot to mention this. Um, so what we find out in the very beginning is that Val Kilmer um, had uh, either throat cancer or he had some something that's that's really impaired his ability to speak. So he can't speak anymore. He need, he speaks through like a, um, he has one of those tubes in his throat and he has to, it's very difficult to understand him. So this movie is narrated by his son, which is just like a really cool touch, really interesting, um, a really sweet touch. And um, and visually he is, as this movie is going along, he's marking the different chapters in his life through his artwork. And that's through his paintings, through his collages. You see him like putting, um, he's literally like showing you chapters of his life. And uh, so it's like a multimedia experience. And um, he's just like a really fascinating individual. And I didn't realize he was so deep. And I think that's really what, because I've always been a Val Kilmer fan. I loved him since, you know, Tombstone and Batman Forever. And uh, I just thought he was like kind of a quirky dude. But you see, like, what what drives him. And, you know, there's different points where he talks about, like, you know, he was hated on the set because he was considered difficult. But then you get to see his side of it, of why he was being difficult, is because, you know, either his director was being a pain in the ass or some something was, like, inhibiting his ability to perform. And he gets to show that by showing you this, this video of the actual behind the scenes stuff. So I thought that was just a really interesting touch. But he also goes into like the backstory of his life. Um, his mom and dad, uh, they divorce and he has like tragedy in his life. And um, his dad uh, gets into like huge debt and he bails him out at some point. And then um, you really see that he's a family man. And he he's just like, he's, he's one of these guys that, especially in LA, I'm sure it's in other places too, but he's one of these, older guys that are just like really interesting to talk to because you know they've experienced life in a much different way that you have mm -hmm. and they're in touch with certain things and um, they kind of just want to impart their wisdom on you even if you only meet them once and that is like that's who Val Kilmer is and he's through all the challenges that he faces without being able to speak and you know he, he lost all his money all his fortune and he's kind of um has to go to these comic cons to make money now and meet the fans and he he, he shows you how um, with a different perspective you could feel sorry for him but he doesn't want that he doesn't want you to feel sorry for him he, he looks for the brighter side he looks for the silver lining and he says 
you know, even though these people are bringing me these photos of me in my prime when I was, you know, like on top of the world, um, and now he's, he's just an old man who can't speak, he's like, they love me still. So it's like, I can't feel bad about that. Um, I just thought he had like a really interesting perspective. And um, I'm, I, I'm so grateful that I got to see this movie. Um, and he's just a really talented and fascinating dude. So I, I think Val is like a must watch for anyone that's ever liked Val Kilmer. So it's great. Really, really it's good a great documentary. documentary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, for you, Aaron, what is your favorite Val Kilmer film? Tombstone by far. Yeah. I think that that performance is just Legendary. otherworldly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've seen the movie a hundred times and it's mostly but because his of Doc him, Holiday. So. I mean, that's like the stuff of mythology, like yes. almost as much as the ant- his antics on set, which is its own myth, you know, which he deconstructs yeah. quite a bit in the documentary. Yes. Um, uh, because there are so many Val as being difficult stories, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but Doc Holliday is the one, always, you know, obviously Top Gun is massive. He's been in a lot of huge films. He was Batman, mm-hmm. for goodness sakes. Uh, I love his bit on Batman. Like, oh, I didn't great. realize no, it's great. how miserable he was. Hashtag so. Batman forever. No, it's great. Batman uh, forever. <laughs> Dude, that, there's, there's a point that he makes in Batman. And, uh, you know, I've, of all the Batman movies, I think I've watched Batman forever the most. Because it was like it came out when I was a kid, mm. and I remember it coming out and being in the movie theaters, and and I've yeah. seen the movie probably a hundred times. Um, and I, oh, also I was a huge Jim Carrey fan at the time. Yeah, Tommy so. Lee Jones's Two Face was a must watch. <laughs> yeah. So he makes a point to to talk about how um, in Batman he wasn't allowed to act because he was in this giant rubber suit mm-hmm. that you couldn't express yourself, and he he at some point he made peace with it because the other actors he was on screen with were just playing off him. So he was just kind of playing the straight man. And if you're talking about like a joke situation, he's just the straight man. And so he that allows Tommy Lee Jones to go over the top. That allows um, Jim Carrey to go over the top. And even Nicole Kidman, like they're, they're like, you know, they're going for it. And he's not allowed to because he's stuck in this giant rubber suit that doesn't move. So it's pretty, pretty fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and, and I didn't realize any of that. Yeah. Amazon so, Prime. It is on Amazon Prime. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Wonderful. Oh, wow. Number one. I love that. I love that that's there. It's on my long list. Oh, jeez. But, uh, yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> it's not my, my number one. Uh, my number one, though, is another documentary directed by Peter Jackson, and uh, that is The Beatles Get Back. Uh, now, some might call this a cheat. This was a do- oh, supposed to be released as a documentary it in is. theaters. <laughs> no, hold on, I, I, hold on, hold on. Hear me, hear me out first. Hear me out. This was a two-hour film to be released in theaters. Pandemic hits. Peter Jackson can't help himself, and no one can tell Peter Jackson what to do in the editing room. He decides to make it an eight-hour, three-part doc miniseries. Okay, fine. Have I? I've watched it multiple times. Okay. Uh, I, I'm going to take the controversial stance of saying that I love the Beatles. Um, and always have <laughs> not many people out there like me, but I'm, I'm out there on Beatles Island. <laughs> um, but there is a two hour cut of this film that would encapsulate most of what I love about this doc miniseries. So I know it's a cheat, but, but bear with me. I, I watched the, I mean, this only came out over the Thanksgiving week and I've already gone through it four times and it's eight hours so yeah that tells you how much i love this now i'll tell you why i talk about the theme of memory uh and looking back on events and remembering what they happened well i grew up with this story that most people were told about the ending of the beatles right the beatles really didn't last seven years or something like that 
and of course their uh, their album output was prolific but they broke up and they broke up because Yoko Ono they broke up because John and Paul hated each other and they broke up because of this legendary footage of the let it be sessions of them yelling at each other and George Harrison quitting and being upset and them just being at each other's throats and there's so this footage uh, they released a, a cut of the film but that was like impossible to find growing up so I never saw it but I heard about this uh, infamous footage about how much they hated each other and it was one of those things where it's like do you really want to see you don't want to see the Beatles like that you want to see them at their best getting along making music being happy and so when I found out that Peter Jackson was going to make a documentary based on this footage I thought well I'm here for any Beatles content but I wonder is this going to be painful to watch now that feeling was only enhanced when I saw uh, an interview with Paul McCartney and he was very nervous about the way he would come across in that footage and what was interesting was he had bought the characterization just like all of us about the ending of the Beatles even though he lived it and he was a part of it uh, he kind of he believed that that footage was as bad as I had heard it was and then he had one of the initial reactions to it uh, before it was released to the public and he said I think it was in an interview with Colbert uh, he mentioned how shocked he was how different it was than he had remembered and that's a funny thing about memory this was so this was 1969 it's a very long time ago but when you're in the Beatles and you're in the cultural zeitgeist forever across multiple generations you're being retold the story the story about how acrimonious these recording sessions were and you know as the memory fades he starts to adopt what the story is that people are telling whether the, rather than the reality because it's not like he was filming all of this himself it's not like he had the footage to look at well when I went through this for the first time, this documentary, I was stunned at not just the fact that it's really not so acrimonious. Um, I mean, there you can tell there are tensions, but what you see is this group of people that have been through an experience that no one else on the planet has been through with Beatlemania. But what you see is this real love, uh, this, this brotherhood uh, among this group. You can tell that love is there, but you can also tell that just like in life, interests are diverging. George Harrison's, you know, into his kind of his, uh, meditation, this newfound Hindu faith, and he's wanting to write songs. And he is, he does quit the band in the middle of the documentary. And that is like one of the big emotional moments. Um, but you kind of understand why he's frustrated, even if he's you know, being a little pouty. But you see John Lennon kind of going through the motions, being willing to go along with Paul's, you know, kind of type A personality, trying to manage the band since their uh, famous manager, Brian Epstein, had passed away two years pri prior. Um, but you can also tell John Lennon's musical interests have completely diverged from Paul's and he's willing to go along with it for these sessions. But the reality is, is he just wants to make different kinds of music and his interest. He's just grown apart in terms of interest. That's totally natural. That's normal in life for that to happen. Uh, and in the documentary, you see Paul talking about how silly it would be in the future if anyone were to blame Yoko for the break, uh, Yoko Ono for the breakup <laughs> of the band. And you're like, oh, well, that's what happened. Everyone is blaming her. But you see her in the documentary and it's like, She's really not any more of a presence than Linda Eastman or uh, Mal, uh, uh, Ringo's wife. They're all there uh, in, through a lot of the recording sessions, and it's great. It's not really that you know big of a deal. And it's just funny to see. It's like, oh, this wasn't the ending of the Beatles that I was told. This is totally different. And, and there's these flashes, these moments where John and Paul will be writing a song together, and they look at each other, and there's just this light. And you can tell, oh, these two guys, they have something special. The thing that everyone talks about, Paul McCartney and John Lennon, that, that, that famous chemistry, that songwriting chemistry. And it's not throughout the documentary, but there's these moments where you can see in their eyes 
that the the musical genius and also the love they truly have for one another. They weren't at each other's throats in this documentary. They were just two human beings growing apart in different directions, and this had come to its natural end. And and so yeah, there were lawsuits that follow. History shows there was there was acrimony in other ways, but this these sessions were really a, a, a last ride, and it would it, it culminates in this their last live performance, this iconic rooftop performance in central London, which is incredible as the police try so hard to shut it down uh, and are very bad at doing so until they finally succeed. But it's even watching them play the live music, which I didn't realize that on the album, let it be most of the tracks are from just that quick live performance. They did like how good of musicians they are to be able to just go up on a rooftop, play a few tracks and it's good enough to drop on the album is it speaks to obviously their uncanny musical ability but even moments of watching out of thin air paul mccartney come up with the riff and the lyrics to get back uh as it's happening in the documentary it's stunning because he's just messing on the guitar and he starts to sound a little familiar and you're like oh it sounds like kind of like the intro to get back and then you see him finding it and then he starts making up words to go along with the tune until he refines what the actual lyrics are. And watching a Beatle come up with a Beatle classic in real time was something I never thought I was going to be able to see. <laughs> and this documentary provides that. I loved it. I love that it uh, completely reorients and changes how I thought of and viewed the demise of the Beatles. And it's so much happier and so much more understandable than the stories I was told growing up, the mythology that Paul McCartney himself had bought into. And so... I loved this. I, I this is the much happier ending um, than I had anticipated, and uh, it's just really incredible to see geniuses at work. So it's a cheat, but it's honestly it's it's my number one of the year. There's two hours in there that is better than any two hours of anything else I've seen. So get back to my number one. Got had to do it. Had you to have to it. go with your heart. Got to go with your heart. <laughs> On, Shannon, I thought you were gonna go with your heart. I thought Bo Burnham was gonna make an appearance, but. Uh, Good. He, uh, I'll just say he would he would be my number one. <laughs> okay. But I think you're right though that it's not really a movie that that is still the most pro, uh, prolific thing I've seen this year or the one that I have like I sing all the songs from that <laughs> oh, <laughs> I yeah. think about it all the time like yeah that the entire year has just made such an impact. <laughs> He has a Bezos. But it's a comedy special. <laughs> so, One of his Bezos know. songs I thought was funny, and I just put it to a quick slideshow of random photos of Jeff Bezos. I put it up on my on just YouTube, whatever, <laughs> mostly to share out the link to people. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that that video has over a hundred thousand views now. And that was like uploaded I don't know a few <laughs> months ago. Incredible. I was like, wait, what? How did this? What? It's like not like well made, but it's just like this. People love the song that much. <laughs> And uh, I guess people are YouTubing Bezos. So <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. I had that song came up on Spotify when I was driving the other day, and there was an Amazon Prime truck oh, driving perfect. next to me. And I really wanted to roll down the window and just start singing it at him. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. So good. I was hoping someone, maybe Anyways. William Shatner or Michael Strahan, when they would go up in the Bezos rocket, that they would just, as they're going up, they're like, all right, you know, <laughs> I got, I'm playing DJ in this uh, little capsule, and they start playing playing Bo Burnham's just the Bezos <laughs> Jeffrey Bezos oh, that's so good <laughs> anyway well uh, guys man. this I know it's a marathon episode nearly two hours thank you so much for joining <laughs> thanks for sharing your top 10 it was I know a good it's, year 2021 was a good yeah. year I thought it was I mean I know 2020 was a tough yeah. year because the releases all got delayed so we didn't we had a different crop of movies I felt like we had a great list of movies to draw from and we didn't even mention the highest grossing film Spider-Man uh, No Way Home which 
Um, a very high Rotten Tomato score. It's on my long list. wasn't going to make my top ten. I think the second yeah, half is perfect. The first half is problematic, or it, it, first half is fine. Whatever. But like to see that film have its at least financial success as well as the list of the you know auteur cinema, it, it makes yeah. me happy knowing that like movies are back. They're coming out, yeah, and it's going to keep getting better. And I'm really excited for 2022 here and what we're going to see. So. What a relief. What a relief. No <laughs> kidding. Any other final thoughts on Cinema 2021 from either of you? I think we said a no. lot. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we covered the whole spectrum. I appreciate that, actually. I, th- I think uh, a lot of the stuff that you guys mentioned, I'll, I'll have to actually check it out. Actually, maybe let's end on this. Everyone just run through your top 10. Just to remind everyone uh, from 10 to 1 what, what your films are. So for me... Yeah. Um, Quo Vadis Ida, uh, The Rescue, Pig, Azor, The Card Counter, Dune, Riders of Justice, The Green Knight, Licorice Pizza, and The Beatles Get Back. I'll go. Um, mine are From 10 to 1, The Lost Daughter, Titan, The Power of the Dog, Licorice Pizza, Riders of Justice, In the Heights, plus West Side Story. Watch them <laughs> as a double feature. Um, the Green Knight, Together Together, Pig, and The Worst Person in the yeah, World. That's a great list. And number 10, I have Last Night in Soho, then The Last Duel, Don't Look Up, Stillwater, Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain, Pig, Dune. Number three is The Card Counter. Number two is The Green Knight. And number one is Billie Eilish, The World's a Little Blurry. Oh, no, sorry. That <laughs> no. oh. is number one. Was it because I did a musical documentary inspired you to put your favorite musical documentary? Yes, it was. So Pig- okay, that documentary rocks. I didn't so. watch it. I, is it good? I didn't see I, it. I truly enjoyed it. Oh, wow. Okay. It has Orlando Bloom being super creepy. Oh. Oh, say, no, wow. say no more. <laughs> I am in. I, this this tells you how old I am now that I watched that doc though and was like, her parents are just the best. <laughs> like <laughs> they grounded her and made her a better human. <laughs> like, that is what I. That was my technique wow. from that one. <laughs> That's great. Oh, so, but I haven't seen either of the documentaries you have at number one, <laughs> so apparently I have some work to do. Uh, but we did have it sounds like Pig and The Green Knight were the two that were on all of our lists was I the only one that had Dune? no I had Dune no both of you had Dune you had Dune oh number four that's right that's right yeah alright and then two uh, two of us with Riders of Justice two had Licorice Pizza two had Card Counter Uh, perfect wow great wonderful job uh, all right. Well, we that's needed it. some love for Writers of Justice. Go no see Writers of Justice. Love. Dan- yeah, <laughs> Denmark's been producing some good stuff. Truly, good cinema. But... All righty, you two. Appreciate your time. That's the end of the show. Hold on to your butts. Can't wait for 2022. Have a good night. Thank you for listening to the Brave Little Podcast. Hold on to your butts. <laughs>